You are listening to This World of Humans, a science podcast focusing on the interface of biology and social science. Coming to you from the podcast recording studio at John Jay College in New York City. For more information about today's topic, visit visionlearning.com slash TWOH. Hello, this is Nathan Lentz, and for this episode of This World of Humans, we're going to do things a little differently. Instead of recording here in the studio at John Jay College, I'm actually going to visit uh, with the scientist whose work we're discussing today. And that scientist is Dr. Jill Barganetti, and she is a professor of biological sciences at Hunter College, also here in New York City, and one of our sister schools within the City University of New York. Uh, Professor Barganetti has had a very long and successful career in cancer biology. She studies uh, cancer cells, specifically most often breast cancer cells, um, how they do what they do in the early phases of cancer, and uh, specifically the paper we're going to discuss today um, discusses uh, metastasis, which is the process of cancer spreading from its initial location, sometimes called the primary tumor, to secondary locations, which is usually when the real trouble begins uh, in cancer. Um, so she studies uh, breast cancer cells, uh, very often triple negative breast cancer cells, and we'll discuss what those are with her shortly. Um, and she studies these in the laboratory with mice. So she uses uh, an animal model uh, of, of cancer, uh, specifically within mice, and she studies how the cancer cells progress. Uh, of course, the goal of all this work is to find better treatments for cancer. Cancer has been a very stubborn disease in the sense of um, it always seems to come back uh, stronger. So finding new ways to prevent its spread uh, is a hot topic in cancer research. And so um, I'm going to head out and head to her laboratory right now, and I'm looking forward to a very interesting conversation today. All right, well, welcome, uh, Dr. Barganetti. It's so, it's so nice to meet you here in your office, and thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about this work you've done on cancer metastasis, on the spreading of cancer cells from you know its original site of the tumor to other places in the body. But I think in order for us to do that, we got to back way up and tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in this project. So you're a native New Yorker, I understand? I am a native New Yorker. All right. And um, from there you went to, I think, SUNY Purchase Correct. for undergraduate and then back to New York City for your master's and PhD at NYU. Correct. So okay. I've never left New York. Never left New York. And you've, have you had an interest in cancer biology all along or does that more develop later in your career? That developed in graduate school. In graduate school at NYU. Yes. And then you did your postdoctoral fellowship at Columbia University, correct? Correct. And that's when you specifically focused in on P53? That was my P53 time. Your P53 time. So tell and us a little... It has continued. It has <laughs> continued. The P53 community tends to, to stay in that world. So tell me a little bit about P53. What is P53? So P53 is an incredibly important tumor suppressor mm -hmm. gene and protein. So the gene makes the protein, and this protein is... Uh, guardian of the genome. It's involved in telling cells to die. It's also involved in helping cells repair their DNA. Mm -hmm. um, and it's involved in signaling to a lot of other pathways that can tell cells to stop growing. Okay. And you said P53 sometimes tells the cell to die. Why would that be a good thing? Well, when cells have sustained a lot of mutations, mm -hmm. um, then it probably is best that they don't continue growing because they no longer are able to understand how to regulate their growth and they can grow out of control. 
So it's a really good thing if they've gotten a lot of mutation for them to leave the environment and leave the good cells behind. So P53 basically tells those bad cells to go away. Go away and take their mutations with them. Exactly. And so, um, and, and if a cell doesn't listen to that message and just continues on growing, as you said, out of control, that's, that's how cancer starts? That's a big way that cancer starts, yes. Okay. You can have a lot of cells dividing out of control, so they're proliferating, and that proliferation can begin the process of getting a mass, which is a tumor. Okay. And so P53 catches it, these damaged cells, a lot of the time and, and restrains them in some way. Correct. But sometimes not, obviously, because we get cancer. So what happens? How, how does a cell get around this guardian of the genome? Well, there are a few ways that mm -hmm. the cell can get around the guardian of the genome. The first is it can mutate that guardian gene. Um, so in 70% of cancers, that guardian gene is mutated. Oh, so P53, P53 itself, itself oh. gets mutated. And now that P53 can no longer act as a guardian. In fact, so you get two copies of the gene, one from your mom and one from your dad. Mm -hmm. And as a tumor suppressor, you need to mutate both copies of that gene. So mm -hmm. there can't be any good copies left. And if both copies are mutated, then it can no longer serve in its guardian capacity. Um, another way that it can no longer work is that there can be some other gene that's producing a protein, and that protein can come and hold the P53 in check. It's sort of like a boulder up at the top of the hill holding another boulder. Mm -hmm. And it's not letting the P53 run and do its job to kill the cell, so that P53 is no longer able to work. I see. So if you're a, a budding cancer cell, one thing you could do is get rid of P53. Another thing you could do is take some other factor and do the dirty work for you to, to keep P53 out of the picture. That's right. You could just hold it back and one of those proteins that is the sort of yin-yang, the holder of P53, is a protein called MDM2 mm -hmm. and it has a family of other proteins that are in its class and one of those is called MDMX. MDMX. Okay. Or MDM4. Sometimes it's called MDM4, but yeah. Okay. So, yeah, d a gene can have multiple names, yes. I guess. It's discovered in different places yeah. or in different organisms. So MDMX, as you call it, is, is, is important for humans, but you work often in mice. Is correct. that correct? Okay. So um, I want to talk about a recent paper that you've published that's caught uh, a lot of people's attention as, as being particularly important, but it's particularly important in certain kinds of cancer. What, uh, what kinds of cancer were you looking at in this study? So we look at triple negative breast cancer, mm -hmm. and triple negative breast cancer is a form of breast cancer that currently doesn't have any markers that allow it to be treated by chemotherapy easily. Okay. So there are a number of breast cancers that are called positives, like estrogen receptor positive mm -hmm. or HER2 positive, mm -hmm. but triple negative is missing that estrogen receptor or that HER2 or another receptor called progesterone receptor. Mm -hmm. And those types of receptors, then you can treat with a drug that will block those receptors. Triple negative doesn't have any of those receptors, and so people have been trying to discover what does triple negative have that's actually driving it. And one of the things is a mutation in P53. So mm -hmm. actually many triple negatives have mutations in P53 but they also have overexpression of MDM2 and MDMX. 
So in these particular cancers, it looks like it has a double to a triple whammy, where mm -hmm. we've got mutation in P53, and then these proteins that I told you can hold P53 back, but also have other functions that have not yet been discovered. So we're trying to figure out what are those other driving functions that make cancers so aggressive. And triple negative breast cancer is a very aggressive form of breast cancer. It's highly metastatic and it's difficult to treat because we don't have markers for it. Right, okay. Well, this is a lot to unpack here. Let's, let's, let's back up, but also um, frame the discussion going forward. So triple negative, you have estrogen receptor, progesterone receptor, as well as HER2, which I think is also a receptor, but it's on the outside of the cells. So it's three very different kinds of receptors. Now, I remember when I first learned about this myself, all of those receptors drive a cell forward, potentially. So when you, I always thought, well, if you lose them, that would, that would make them less likely to grow. It's like losing your gas pedal in your car. But I think it's more like you're losing it with the gas pedal down and on. Is that right? And there's no way to take it off once you lose the receptor. Is that sort of how you'd put it? Um, so I would say you've lost those drivers, mm -hmm. but because you've lost those drivers, somehow the cell through the evolution, because mm -hmm. cells evolve all the time, mm -hmm. um, the cells want to continue to do their thing. Mm -hmm. And so they found other ways to drive this cancer. So those gas pedals are gone but somehow there was an engineer in that cell mm -hmm. that found a completely new gas pedal. Mm -hmm. And because it's a new gas pedal, there's no switch on the dashboard to stop to it. To turn it off, I see. So it's more, it's more like losing a brake pedal than a gas pedal, ultimately. Yes. Um, because when estrogen receptor, for example, there's drugs like tamoxifen and so forth that you can use. I'm not sure about progesterone receptor other drugs that you can target that one? You can target. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, there's HER2, which is, um, is it Gleevec? Or no, not Gleevec. Is it? Herceptin. Herceptin. Okay, so the Herceptin drug targets that receptor. So you've lost all these these uh, potential brake pedals, and the, the cell seems to be growing anyway. And now you're focusing on P53. And that seems to be um, really common in triple negative breast cancer. So they, you've lost P53, you've but you've lost you, that brake pedal. You've lost so that brake pedal. You've lost that brake pedal. A lot of brake pedals gone here. But and then MDM2 is overexpressed. So you would think, why do you need MDM2 since it generally targets P53? You've lost that anyway. It must be doing other things. Exactly. Okay. And that's must what. Must be doing other things. Other things. So okay. What are those other things mm -hmm. that the MDM2 and potentially the MDMX are doing? In terms of studying these triple negative breast cancers, we took triple negative breast cancers that had mutant P53, so their P53 is not functioning as that brake pedal. Uh, and then we put in a particular sort of construct that allowed us to get rid of either their MDM2 or their MDMX. That was done so we could ask the question, how is the MDM2 or how is the MDMX influencing the size of the tumor? And how is it influencing the ability of those tumor cells to get into the bloodstream and then invade the lung? So the organ we looked at for metastasis was the lung. Mm -hmm. And asking how many of these cells then make it to the lung and metastasize into the lung. So this this control then for the experiment was the same construct, but not getting rid of MDM2 or MDMX, but still allowing us to track the cells. 
-hmm. And the way we can easily track these cells is to turn them fluorescently green. Mm -hmm. So we put in a marker where the cells are expressing green fluorescent protein. And this way, when we take the blood out of the animal, we can run it through a fluorescence-activated cell sorting machine, and any cell that has the green fluorescent protein will fluoresce green, and you get a count for that cell. So we can accurately count the number of tumor cells that get into the bloodstream in all of these different animals. So we can compare the control, where we just have green cells, the cells that then don't have MDM2, or the cells that don't have MDMX. And we can make a conclusion on how either MDM2 or MDMX regulates the size of the tumor and the ability of those tumor cells to get into the bloodstream and then the ability of those cells to invade the lung. Okay, so let me see if I have this right. So you have um, the cells, you have different populations of cells that are gonna go into different mice. Sort of normal cells in the sense of their MDM2 or MDMX is whatever it would naturally be. Well, I would say there are cancer cells. Cancer They're cells, not normal right. cells, yeah, right, but right, cancer right. cells that we haven't changed. That we haven't changed. Okay, so there's cancer cells you haven't changed, cancer cells that you've knocked down or, or under-expressed MDM2, Correct. and then cancer cells where you've under-expressed MDMX. Those are the major populations of cells, the three kinds that, of cells. Yes, we're those studying. are the three yeah. that we compared. And they're all fluorescent green when, when you shine the UV light on them or whatever. Okay. And then, so different mice got different ones. And then the mice that had the unaltered cancer cells, um, what, how, how were they different? What, what did you learn when you, when you compared the three kinds of cells in the mice? So these um, triple negative breast cancers are highly metastatic. So when we compared them and started by looking just what happens to the cells getting into the bloodstream, when we looked at those cells that were just cancer cells with no changes except the green, mm -hmm. we saw lots of green cells in the bloodstream. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, on the order, so we counted these cells per ml of blood. So we could see, wow, we have a lot of green cells in a milliliter of blood. Mm -hmm. But when we got rid of the MDM2, we saw a reduction in the number of cells that got into the blood. And so this is looking at uh, eight animals, um, seven animals. So we do the statistics and we compare the number of animals and how much we get for these green cells in the blood. We take all the blood out of the animal. Um, in order to be able to examine this. Mm -hmm. And then when we did MDMX, that was where we saw the most profound effect. So when we got rid of MDMX, we saw practically no green cells at all in the blood of those animals, which was, was really a profound result because it had never been shown before that MDMX had anything to do with driving metastasis. Okay. Now, the appearance of these blood cell of these cancer cells in the blood, one interpretation is that they've they're more prone to spreading and they leave. But did you you must have also checked to make sure that the they were still there and the they weren't dying and just that's why they're missing. So, sort of what kind of control experiments did you do to make sure you were interpreting this uh, in the right way? Well, and we also looked at the tumor size. Mm -hmm. So we were examining if it changed the size of the tumor. So did we have a difference in the width um, 
depth, so you actually measure the entire size of the tumor, and then you take the tumor out at the end of the experiment and you weigh it. Uh, but during the course of the animal's development, we, we watched them. So the first day that we were able to see any kind of tumor developing in these mice was 14 days after the cells had been injected into the mice. And when you first inject, it's a small enough amount that you, you won't see a tumor. You don't see anything. Okay, but and then two, two weeks later you start to see it. Okay. Correct. So we put it into the mammary fat pad of the mouse, which means it's going into their, their breast tissue. Mm -hmm. So we try to recapitulate as closely as we can to these breast cells in uh, a breast. Mm -hmm. Although they're human cells in a mouse, they're mm -hmm. human breast cells in the breast of the mouse. Mm -hmm. So after 14 days, when we compared these three different cell types, the breast cancer cells with no change except the green, the breast cancer cells where we had gotten practically rid of MDM2 or where we had gotten rid of MDMX, we saw that the tumor size in this beginning developing tumor was about the same. So there wasn't much difference. So the, the size and growth rate of the primary tumor, the breast tumor, um, was unaffected by these knockdowns. At the early stage. At the early Correct. stage. And so, and this is a concept uh, for our listeners at home, uh, in very common in genetics research, the knockout or the knockdown is you, you remove something from the cell and see how it acts differently as a way to understand what it normally does. So it's kind of a, it's kind of a negative, uh, you're looking for a change by deleting something and then you infer what its function was. So A little and, bit of a puzzle. Yeah, yeah, and in this case it seems like the primary growth of the tumor it wasn't changed, but yet it wasn't appearing in the bloodstream as much when you knock down either MDM2 or MDMH. So the inference is that it's somehow involved in the spreading of those cancer cells. Correct. And that was at the early stage. We couldn't really see anything in the blood at that point. Mm -hmm. um, we're not trying because in order to look at the blood, we have to wait until the experiment's over. Mm -hmm. um, so when we finish and we're all done, then the mouse is sacrificed and we take all the blood from the mouse. At what point? How, how long after? So that was at 36 days. That's the end point That's of the, the experiment. That's the end point of the experiment. So a little over a month. So it's when these tumors have gotten very, very big. Um, and in fact, as the experiment moved on, we did begin to see a bit of a difference, as you might note by looking at these um, histograms. So you can see that the MDMX starts to have a bit of a smaller tumor if we look at the average, but when we did, this, did the statistics, it wasn't significant enough for us to say, wow, this is a huge difference but it definitely was a trend towards a smaller tumor a little bit with both the MDM2 knockdown and the MDMX knockdown. I see. So there was a, a bit of a change, but for the MDM2 at the end point, nothing. So the MDM2 had a tumor that was the same size as the, as the cells with no change. The MDMX still a bit of a trend smaller, but nothing that was statistically significant. Mm -hmm. So these are the endpoints here. I see. And um, when you pull the, the cells back out after they've been in the, the mouse for over a month, um, do you run any other kinds of tests on them to see any changes they've accumulated? Or what, what do you look at in the cells after you pull them back out? So after we take the cells out, we look at a few things. Um, we take the tumors out, and we look at the cells in the tumor. Mm -hmm. 
and then we take the cells from the circulation, these circulating tumor cells, and we're actually able to sort out those cells, those green cells, and collect them and look at what's going on in those green cells that got into the bloodstream. So first let's look at what happened in the tumor. So in the tumor we could look at the protein levels by something called a western blot. And so we wanted to make sure that when we thought we had knock down the MDM2 or the MDMX, we had in fact done that. So we made sure that in that tumor where we said, okay, we're getting rid of MDM2, did we really get rid of MDM2? And an interesting thing was when we did get rid of the MDM2, we had increased the MDMX. So the MDM2 downregulation was increasing this MDMX, and they're actually partners in crime. So it was very hard to get rid of the MDM2 and not have those cells want to continue to grow. So they said, okay, we, we really need this other protein, MDMX. So this is a beginning to see how important this MDMX is. When you get rid of MDM2, you get more MDMX. Um, and then we looked at, in the cells where we thought we had gotten rid of MDMX, did we really get rid of MDMX? And in fact, we did get rid of MDMX, and that didn't change the MDM2. So now it's not so surprising that when we get rid of MDMX, we had a bigger effect. Um, because there you, you we got, don't get the compensation. We do not get any compensation. But when mm -hmm. we get rid of MDM2, we get compensation and increase MDMX. So MDMX seems to be more of the Achilles heel for these these cancers, maybe getting rid of MDMX is a better target than getting rid of MDM2. I see. And the you said that the, the metastasis in general for breast cancer that you were looking at was towards the lung. Did you end up waiting long enough to see any of these cells set up camp in the lungs of the mice? So we did, and we compared the tumors in the lung. Um, and so when we did this, we did see that we had a decrease in the lung tumors. I think that figure, I can't show you right here, so that's in our supplementary data. Mm -hmm. But when we looked in the lung and we counted the number of metastases, we saw that the knockdown of MDMX, basically, we didn't see any metastasis or very, very little, very few. Okay. So which stands to reason if you have less cells in the blood, there are less cells able to go to the lung because they're not in the blood. Mm -hmm. And the more cells you have going into the blood, the more cells can travel to other organs. Yeah. And in humans, is is lungs, uh, lung tissue the primary target of, of breast cancer metastasis? Does it spread there or... You get a bone, lot in the bone, brain, bone but it's very difficult in the animal model to, to look at the right. tumor in the, right. in the okay. bone. So for our model, it was easier for us to just say, okay, let's look in the lung. Mm -hmm. The lung was, it's a big organ. Mm -hmm. and, so, yeah. and you can find the cells. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, um, so what this tells me, I, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, is that potentially uh, triple negative breast cancer, or the, one of the problems is you have fewer tools uh, to try to stop it, but maybe targeting MDMX might be a tool worth exploring in this triple negative. Is that your interpretation? That's our interpretation, and we also looked for a few other markers, so we tried to see what metastasis targets might be um, on the horizon that MDMX was talking to. And so we had a few hints, and so we're beginning to explore what other things are there that might even be easier to get at than MDMX because MDMX is inside the cell 
and as you alluded to earlier when you said HER2 is on the surface, um, when you have some sort of marker that's on the outside of the cell, it's a little bit easier to get a drug that can go and block it than if the protein is inside a cell mm. to get that drug to go inside the cell and block it. So we're trying to also determine what is MDMX talking to that might be a little bit easier to have drugs target it. But certainly in terms of the biomarker, MDMX is a pretty easy biomarker to see. Mm -hmm. So we can look to see if cells in the circulation perhaps have MDMX protein um, high. And currently now there's also things that are looking at circulating tumor DNA. So, mm -hmm. you know, there might be things on the horizon to look at this as well. And what, what would come next for you then? What's, what are some unanswered questions on a study like this? What would you like to pursue further with this question? I would really love to pursue trying some of these molecules that do dual inhibition of MDM2 and MDMX in our mouse model. Um, that would be mm -hmm. a really important study. And in addition, we saw that this protein CXCR4, which is a G protein coupled receptor, might be important in this metastatic cascade. Um, and here we think there's some crosstalk between the microenvironment uh, and the tumor itself. So the tumor also talks to the cells that are next to the tumor. And so I think this is a very important area to explore how the cells are talking to the cells next to them to say, oh, we, we want to get out, and those cells near them are saying, okay, we'll let you out. Mm -hmm. So there's some kind of, of gating that uh, should happen that isn't happening. Mm -hmm. So how, how does that the breast, these, these These aggressive breast cancer cells know how to talk their way out they do. of their That's local... That's a very good analogy. They know how memory. to talk their way out. Yeah. They do. Um, well, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to you today. Can we can we look in your lab for a little bit? Maybe see. Sure, see how this. Sure, that would be great. I'd love. Yeah, to I'd show love to see you. how the work is actually done. I love the lab. It's yeah. just a great place to be, and beautiful here at our CUNY lab at the Belfer Research Building, um, in a state of the art location. Uh, uh, yeah, and I, I didn't even know about this partnership with Hunter College and. Um, and Memorial Sloan Kettering is right across the street. I mean, this is a real hub of, of research here. Hunter right. College and Wild Cornell. Yeah, let's go check it out. Okay. This has been another episode of This World of Humans, a podcast and science education initiative currently supported by Vision Learning and the PSC CUNY Research Award Program at the City University of New York. Science educators, don't forget to check out our website for a wealth of resources to help integrate this episode and its featured article into your science classroom. Find us at visionlearning.com slash TWOH.